know for many of you, when you hear the Messiah, you immediately think of Christmas, and yet that is just one very small part of the Messiah. My prayer for you today is that the next time you hear Messiah, you will see Jesus in a way you have never, ever seen him uh, before. Actually, it wasn't written for Christmas. It was written, or the first time it was actually performed was on April 13, 1742. So it was done in April, not for Christmas. And yet, we associate it certainly with, with Christmas. Uh, the reason I want to play, I'm going to play some excerpts throughout Psalm 2 is because throughout the Messiah in the Old Testament portion, uh, they quote from Psalm 2 in Isaiah, Psalm 2 more than any other psalm. And uh, it's just, it is an, a majestic beautiful picture of who Jesus the Messiah is. It points us uh, to uh, the good news of the Messiah, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is, and we're in this series on David and Davidic Psalms, this is, Psalm 2, is his coronation psalm. There's no superscription, so we don't know who wrote it, but Psalm 1 and 2 go together. Uh, As a matter of fact, Years and years ago, Psalm 1 and 2 was really called Psalm 1, and then our Psalm 3 was called Psalm 2. So they go together beautifully, and we'll see the connections as I work our way uh, through uh, Psalm 2. But it talks about this good news. It's really the whole context. It's a coronation psalm, the psalm of a king taking office. So it talks a lot about leaders and and kings and people who who rule. And, And I would say for all of us, we can certainly apply this to all of our lives. If you have a position of influence in anybody's life, you might be a teacher, you might be a mom or a dad, you might be a pastor, you might be an elder or a deaconess uh, or a Sunday school teacher. If you have a position of influence in anybody's life, this certainly can apply uh, to your life. It really is about uh, this, this, good, this good news of the gospel. Because we're living in a world, and we're going to see this in the psalm, that desperately needs good news because the world is not at peace. Everywhere we look, we see uh, peace talks are on, peace talks are off. Uh, there are some countries who say that there are no non-combatants. Everybody's life is at stake. And this shouldn't surprise us when we look at Revelation chapter 3, or Romans chapter 3. There's none righteous, no, not even one. When you think about the number of wars that have taken place through the centuries, there have been wars fought over everything imaginable. Wars have been fought over ideology. They've been fought over, fought over territory, philosophy, religion. There have even been wars fought over soccer matches. There have been wars in churches over the color of carpet. Uh, it's, it's amazing. And then individual wars that people have, marriages, etc., Though this is really applied to the nation of Israel, it's the coronation psalm of David. Um, It's the one he was coronated with. When you think of world governments, and it looks at all of humanity, actually, but it applies very specifically to us personally. Psalm 1 really honed in on us personally, and then it looked corporately in Psalm 2 at the entire nation. When Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel had this vision of world governments, how did Nebuchadnezzar see world governments? He saw them as this beautiful, uh, majestic idol. But when Daniel, through the eyes of God, saw the vision of world governments. He saw them as beasts 
vicious and tearing and clawing beasts who would rise up against God. There is actually one historian who put it this way. If you wrote one book covering the history of man, you would place on the preface the words of Jesus Christ, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. All of the Bible's hope and our hope for peace is finds its position in this one called the Messiah, uh, the anointed one. In the Greek, it's called the Christos or the Christ or Emmanuel, God with us. And ultimately, he will be the whole story of the Messiah. He will be the one ultimately who will put an end to all philosophy, all religion, all politics. Uh, God pictures the absolute perfect government as God himself and the person of his son ruling all of the nations and all of the nations shall stream to him to hear his word and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and he shall rule from sea to sea. There is no psalm that pictures this any better than Psalm chapter 2. And the Messiah and I'm doing this, and I'm going to have a little clippets of the Messiah throughout, because the next time you hear the Messiah, I really want you to see the grandeur and the majesty and the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I want you to hear, and I want to help you see this uh, today. Uh, Psalm 2 is a fairly short psalm, 12 verses. It's divided up into four different scenes. There are three verses Per scene. A real quick overview, scene one would be the, uh, it just shows the world and our lives in an absolute mess, whether it be morally, intellectually, socially, politically, economically, we are in a mess, and it shows the madness of humanity in our lives, in our homes, and abroad in nations themselves. The second scene, verses four to six, the world thinks that we can treat God with disdain that we can treat him with disobedience or even indifference. And God laughs at that notion that we can be independent of him. The third scene, the final scene, or not the final scene, but the third scene, we find the Messiah conferring with God himself. Actually, this is the only place in the Old Testament where the Messiah actually speaks and it's recorded. So we see him conferring with the Father. Jesus, the King, runs the universe by decree, not by democracy. And uh, Jesus is his majesty, the King, and the Messiah by nature, by conquest, and by his resurrection. So Jesus is reigning today. And the beauty of the gospel is because of his love, because of what he's done in his love, we can reign with him in all of life. That's the beauty of the gospel, that he actually gave himself, died on a cross for our sin, died in our place so that we can reign with him in life. The fourth scene, verses 10 to 12, answers the question, I'm borrowing this question from Francis Schaeffer, how, in light of all of this, how should we then live? How do you live? <clears throat> so again, Psalm 1 and 2, those together are the introduction to the entire Psalter, so when we were divvying out Psalms, when Wade took Psalm 1, I immediately wanted to do Psalm 2 because you can't have Psalm 1 without Psalm 2 is the other half of Psalm 1. So I grabbed Psalm 2. I couldn't wait to do it because within Psalm 1 and 2, there's the thrust. There's two thrusts that weave their way through the entire Psalter. 
And the first thrust is this, Wade covered it last week, that it compels us in Psalm 1 to choose the path that leads. There's going to be a path to life and a path to death. Choose the path to life. And and it really summarizes itself. The thrust is in Psalm 1, 1 to 2. It's the beginning of Psalm 1 that says, Blessed, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and on his law, He meditates day and night. That's the path of life. And then it ends with Psalm 2. At the end of Psalm 2, blessed are those who take refuge in him. So Psalm 2 compels us in light of who the Messiah, the King, Jesus is, take refuge in him. We would call it to trust him, to take refuge in him, uh, to have faith in him. Let's look at scene one. Scene one talks about the state of hearts, the state of the nations today. And we will hear in the first three verses from all of humanity, the voice of defiance. Now, David asked this question, and it caused, when, when Handel went to compose the Messiah, he needed to give the backdrop of why do people need the Messiah. And so listen to what Handel wrote. So furious in face you turn and try to the people and try to the people imagine a vain thing. Why do the peoples imagine a vain thing? Or why do the nations rage and peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth. Listen, this is this is history today. The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, let us burst their bonds, and by the there, let us burst there, that's the, it's the Yahweh, I am, it's the word for I am, let us burst I am and Messiah there, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the psalmist sees an uproar of history of the nations like waves crashing upon the throne of God. And we resist him. We, re- we resist his rule and we defy him. And so it literally says, let us break there, I am and Messiah, chains, they say, and let us throw off their shackles. And what these are, the shackles and the chains of God, are the, the moral, the marital, the societal, the personal, the sexual, absolutes. In other words, they're saying, let us throw off these constraints that God has placed on us. We can live life much better, much more happily, if we don't have these unreasonable constraints. Or or in the Old Testament, it would be like the Ten Commandments. Let's throw those bonds, let's throw those chains, those shackles off of us. And folks, what this is a definition of is a definition of sin. It means these are the things that cause us to miss the mark. All of us. I mean, when, when you think of missing the mark or falling short, how did you feel when you turned 13? Or you turned 14? What did you want to do? I want to cast off the shackles. I want to cast off the constraints. I don't want to do what mommy and daddy tell me to do. I know what can make me happy. Certainly mom and dad don't understand what's best for me. So I'm going to throw off the constraints 
of my parents. And we do the same thing with God. We think, ah, I know better. And we do the same thing with God. Let me ask you, when your high school son or daughter get ready to go out on a date and you tell them, I want you to be home at 11.30, what do they say? Do they say, oh, Father, if you want me home by 11.30, I'll gladly be home by 10. And why not, before we leave, would you read to us from the holy book? (laughs) That doesn't happen. That does not happen. Uh, You might not have discovered it yet, but when you have a sweet little precious little baby and they come out and they look so nice wrapped up in swaddling clothes in a little bassinet, they really come out cussing and drinking and smoking a cigar because they have rebellion wrapped up in their heart. That is the nature of men and women. That's our nature. And when you bunch them all together, that's called a nation. That is what Handel was writing about. That's the need for a Messiah when you have the nations rebelling against God. And so what the psalmist did was to go back 200 years in history and he picks up these terms of of cords and shackles and chains from the life of Samson. Because Samson thought, "I I need to rid myself of Delilah's shackles and chains. And so the psalmist picks up that imagery and he applies that to life. Uh, If if I'm going to live life to the max... What I need to do, I need to get rid of all these archaic notions and binding restrictions of a deity because I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. That's what Adolf Hitler thought. You know, people wondered if he did not fear, why he did not fear the Christians in Germany. He said, frankly, quote, they sweat in my presence. Or King Louis of France, when he was asked about his relationship to the state, he arrogantly replied, I am the state. And that's why in France, in the French Revolution, a prostitute was lifted to their shoulders and they called her reason because they defied God. And we could all give lots of examples of how we as well have attempted to rip off the shackles and the chains, in other words, the constraints of God, because we think we know better. Even when we're told that God loves us incredibly and draws us with his love and says, I've got this wonderful plan for you, if you will just believe me, follow my word, do what Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Just do that. But oh no, I've got a better idea, so I'm going to rip off those constraints, and I'm going to do my own thing. Political science in the Bible, to my little simple mind, I can summarize it very easily. Political science says it really doesn't matter if you have a democracy or a monarchy or republic, what matters is, according to Psalm 2, what matters is who rules the rulers. That's the question. Who rules the rulers? Or personally, let me put it this way, more directly, who rules your life? Who's really calling the shots in your life? 
Who rules you? Do you take refuge, and this is where the psalm is driving us to, to the final verse of Psalm 2. Do you take refuge in Jesus, the Messiah? So those two psalms, 1 and 2, set the stage for the entire Psalter. David and all of his psalms will refer back in one way or another to the introduction of Psalm 1 and 2, the thrusts of Psalm 1 and 2. For example, in Psalm 58, he, he constantly is talking about rulers and leaders, those in power, etc. And so, like, for example, in Psalm 58, he gives us a picture of a ruler who is evil, who is wicked. We would call it, what's the definition of a wicked politician? Or you could say a wicked pastor or a wicked mom or a dad or a teacher, you know, whoever is influencing other people. What's the definition of it? And he says in Psalm 58, their venom is like the venom of a snake, like that of a cobra that has stopped its ears, that will not heed the tune of the charmer, however skillful the enchanter may be. So he's saying, look, you wicked politician or wicked mom, wicked dad, wicked teacher, wicked, wicked whoever, uh, it's anyone who can influence the life of another. You are like a deaf and deadly snake if you cannot hear the voice of your commander. In other words, you are supposed to be listening to the voice of God. That's the introduction to Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. Law of the Lord. But when you don't, when you stop your ears and you don't listen day and night to the law of the Lord, you become like a deadly cobra. The influence on the lives around you is so deadly if you don't listen. So basically, that's the one non-negotiable criteria for anyone who would find their refuge in this Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has to listen to the voice of God and also to apply the precepts therein to their life and to the lives of those that they influence and humbly submit to the sovereign ruler of the universe. So these first three verses really tells us what mankind is like. We're like Samson. We just think we can live life without God, so we rid ourselves of the constraints of God and assume we can run our lives better than God can. Scene two. Scene two, we go into God's very presence and we're asking the question, it's the voice of derision. In other words, without looking, how do you think God will respond when he sees this creation and all the people that, I mean, people that he has actually created and their response to God, how do you think God will respond to that? Do you think, oh no, I'm going to wring my hands in terror. I'm, gonna, I, I, I'm, I'm so upset o over this and I don't know what to do. It says the one enthroned in heaven laughs and the Lord scoffs at this. He scoffs at the notion that people can actually think they can live their lives better by themselves rather than God. It, it's, it's ridiculous. It's mankind without God. It's like a thimble thinking it can bail out the ocean. It's like a termite thinking it can consume the, all the granite of Mount Rushmore. It's like a candle thinking that, that oh, I am going to subdue the glory of the Milky Way. God laughs at that notion that, that we could possibly think we could run our lives better than the Lord can. So it says in verse 5, then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, look, I have installed my king on Zion, on my holy hill. And, and uh, 
Handel does an incredible job with this as well. We won't play that part. But historically, all of this takes place in Revelation 6 to 19, where he says, look, enough is enough. That's it. And he catches away his church, and evil goes unrestrained. Heaven rolls back like a scroll. The Lord's going to descend. The trump's going to sound. And he will consume the wicked armies of the earth along with the Antichrist. He will put Satan in bindings for a thousand years, and he will reign and then separate the world into these groups of people. Psalm 1, those who choose life, the sheep, and those who choose death the goats, and they will be separated. This is the Messiah. This is the Messiah. The interesting thing is is that Barna just did a new research throughout the entire United States. 2018 Barna research says that um, 63% of Americans really want to know who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. 63%. Psalm 2 gives us an incredible picture of who Jesus really is. And I think what we need to take away from this, Jesus is no longer just a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes or walking around, healing a few people, uh, making people happy. Jesus is not someone you just walk into church and tip your hat to Jesus once a week. That is not this Jesus of Psalm chapter 2. This was the entire thrust of Handel's Messiah to drive this home to us. So he includes in this masterpiece, I have installed, that's God, Yahweh, Yahweh says, Yahweh has installed my king, this Messiah, on Zion, my holy hill. Can I ask you, and and thank God you're here in church, thank God you're here to worship the Lord Jesus, but do you treat Jesus nonchalantly? Do you take Jesus for granted? He is absolutely gracious. He is absolutely loving. He is absolutely forgiving. We rejoice in the wonderful, precious news of the gospel. But do you then presume upon that grace? Do you then, in light of what he's done to you, spurn his righteousness and desire to walk according to your own desires and your own path rather than God's. Or Paul would say in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, shall I continue in sin that grace might abound? Meganoito. You know, may it never be. So we've had the voice of defiance, the voice of derision. Thirdly, uh, the voice of declaration. Verses 7 to 9, this is the only place in the Old Testament where the Messiah actually speaks. He says, I'll tell you the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So he says, I, that's, this is the Messiah speaking here, I, the Messiah, will tell of the decree. Yahweh, the I am, said to me, Messiah, and then he quotes what Yahweh 
told the Messiah, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So this is the formula of coronation. There's only one person in the entire Bible that God ever says this to, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. We see it three times throughout the New Testament. You see it at his baptism. You see it at his transfiguration. You see it in Paul's sermon in in, uh, Acts chapter 13. And this time it says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So all authority. Do you remember the Great Commission? And you've probably heard the expression, the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Here it is. Psalm 2, Matthew 28. All authority has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Where did that come from? Psalm 2. Everything was given to Jesus at this point. You are my son today. I've begotten you. You know, the amazing thing is when the church really recognize the majesty and the sovereignty and the authority of the Lord Jesus. When they saw Jesus in all of his fullness, the church exploded. They exploded. You see Peter, uh, preach. You see Peter preaching with incredible authority. And you see Thousands of people trust in Christ. 2,000, 3,000, and the church keeps going. You read about Peter and Timothy and Titus and Paul and Barnabas. All these guys had this incredible picture of who Jesus really is in his fullness. And here we are now in Iowa City. His kingdom has reached the ends of the earth, and he is gathering his people. And we, as believers in Jesus Christ, have a new king. We were chosen by God. We were called by God. He called us to repentance. We received Jesus as the king, the Lord, the king of all kings and the Lord of all, all lords, as our savior. And he indwells us and changed us and brought us into the new covenant. And he began to love us and we began to love him. And as we loved him, we began to love others as well. And we have become his people. And we have chosen this path. And the path is we're blessed because we're delighting in the law of the Lord. And and the path we're not taking is... We're we're not walking in the counsel of the wicked. We're not standing in the way of sinners. We're not sitting in the seat of scoffers. That's Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. So verse 8, he says, ask of me. And so at this point, God asks or says to the Messiah, God says to the Messiah, and I will make the nations your heritage. The ends of the earth, God says to the Messiah, will be your possession. In other words, he's going to give him everything, and there is absolutely nothing that will usurp the the Messiah's kingdom. Now, listen to how Handel put it. He put it this way. No kingdom will usurp the kingdom of God, and his kingdom will have no end. He's gathering his subjects. We are obedient subjects as believers in Jesus Christ. We love him. 
we proclaim him, we stand for him, and we will be like Daniel, and we will not bow to another idol. We will be just like Joseph in Egypt, and even though he may work for Pharaoh, we will still name our children Ephraim and Manasseh. Right now, the Messiah is gathering together a people in his name. And someday, the angel in Revelation chapter 5 will take the scroll, the scroll that is bound with seven seals, and there will only be the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, the one risen from the dead, the prince of peace. He will be the one who will break the seals and the earth, the heavens will be rolled back like a scroll and the Lord will descend and we will forever be with the Lord. But what do we do? That's history future. What do we do now? What do we do today? How shall we then live? Well, that is Psalm 2, 10 to 12. How do we live? That's scene four. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers. Again, coronation psalm. This is for David. This is for every king. This is for every person who has influence over the lives of others. Therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So nationally, politically, in terms of a leader, in terms of a king, pastor, elder, etc., be wise, be wise. You know, I think of that. Therefore, O kings, be wise. You know what wisdom is? Wisdom, when I think nationally, wisdom is the President of the United States at his coronation, putting his hand on the Bible, raising his right hand, and saying, so help me God. That is wisdom. So help me God. I'll tell you what wisdom is. Wisdom is when King Newt, from, he, he was a great king of Sweden who was so loved by his people that he feared for idolatry. So he had his people carry him to the sea. He got out, he stood by the sea, and he commanded the wind to stop and the waves to be still. And obviously when he did that, the wind kept blowing, the waves kept pounding, and he turns to his people and he says, there is but one who commands the winds and the waves, and it is not me. That, folks, that is wisdom. Wisdom is when Abraham Lincoln said, the Bible is the umbilical cord to all virtue. That is what wisdom is. So be wise. Secondly, take warning. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. When Louis of France was getting ready to die, they had him take his body into the Versailles. And he was placed, he commanded all the lights to be uh, extinguished. And there was one candle flame by his face. And he had instructed the priest, uh, gave him these instructions for when he was uh, to die. The priest then, after he died, he took that one sole candle, he lifted the candle up, candle up, he blows the candle out, and then he says in this loud, majestic voice, only God is great. Now that is not only wisdom, folks, that is a warning. 
And then thirdly, serve God with fear and with trembling. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Those two words are catchwords in the Bible to depict the relationship that a slave has for their master, fear and trembling. That's why, you know, back in the 1700s, later 1700s, when the Messiah was played, uh, the king and queen of Great Britain, when they, when they got to this chorus, they stood. So let's play it. It would be appropriate to stand at this place. We do this um, out of um, tradition. And I'll tell you why. felt, and this was spontaneous, George II, Queen, and of course it's been passed down now, we, we do that today in respect, but you know, the King and Queen of Great Britain were, were thinking that as an earthly monarch, how in the world could we ever sit in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and out of respect to who Jesus is, they spontaneously stand. Now that is fear and trembling. And then fourth, be reconciled. Kiss the son. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And then uh, the psalmist really picks this up from chapter 1, Psalm 1, verse 6. For his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. So those are some of the connections. Psalm 1, the way of the wicked will perish. And he says, lest he be angry. And you, you get on that path. There's a path of life, the path of death. Don't get on that path of death. Don't get on that path that will result in perishing. But instead, blessed. And again, Psalm 1, it begins with that first thrust. Blessed are those who delight in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. The second thrust in the entire Psalter is uh, the end of Psalm 2. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In other words, that this is our poor. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, if we're followers in Jesus Christ, this is the portrait of who we are and what we do. We fall before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We grasp his nail-pierced feet and we acknowledge, we kiss the Son. We acknowledge his greatness. We acknowledge his holiness. holiness. We acknowledge his sovereignty, that he is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and we are pledging our subservience and our obedience to him and only him. We do not cast off his restraints, but we rejoice in the, and delight in the law of the Lord. That is what faith in Jesus looks like. That is what salvation looks like. That is faith in Jesus. That is uh, what kissing the sun means. And in light of that, you know, I then believe, I believe that when people have experienced this, that God has called you and me 
to be salt and light as we go out and we preach this glorious gospel and we pray and we protect and we care for those that society scorns and we love those that Christ loves. I say this because I absolutely believe in revival, that God can miraculously create new people out of dead people, that he can miraculously stop the death process. There's a Messiah today in heaven who is crowned king, and he's waiting at God's right hand, and he is in the process now of gathering his people because I believe that this Messiah will one day In a twinkling of an eye, he will catch away his church. And he shall appear, and every eye who uh, can see will see him. Even those who struck him. And the wicked of the earth shall cry for the mountains to fall upon them. And even the rocks will hide them from the wrath of him who sits on the throne, even the Lamb of God. And I believe that he's going to set up his kingdom and his kingdom and dominion will have no end. But until that time, I promise I will continue just like Joseph was. I am going to be a good worker for Pharaoh. And even though I live in Egypt, my children will be named Ephraim and Manasseh. They will, by the grace of God, follow him. And I'm going to be a good employee, just like Daniel was to Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm going to enjoy this world as Joseph enjoyed the leeks and onions of Egypt, as Daniel enjoyed uh, the fruits of Babylon. And I'm going to enjoy the goods of this world as well. It won't be leeks and onions. It will be strawberry rhubarb pie with some vanilla ice cream on top. There will be a lot of things that I will enjoy. But my heart, my eye, will always be toward the Son of God. And I will always quicken my ear to hear the voice of God. And I will, by the grace of God, not bow to another idol, as Daniel did not. And I will preach, and I will pray, and I will resolve to protect the rights of the innocent. But all the while, I am going to be looking for the return of the blessed hope and the appearing of Jesus Christ because I believe my citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for our Savior, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And may he come soon. Let's all stand up. I'll close with prayer. Oh God, in these dozen verses, you have spelled out all of history. You've spelled out where history was, you've spelled out where it is today, and you've spelled out what it will look like. And you have instructed us and told us uh, what to do in these Psalms, that the one who is blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And we're blessed if we take refuge in the Son. So I pray, Lord, for that one Samson who might be here today who's debating whether or not to cast aside the shackles and the constraints of God, who seeks to be the master of their own fate, the captain of their own soul. I pray, God, that you, in your wisdom and in your mercy, in your sovereignty, 
call them by your grace to the magnificence of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may they understand the price that you paid to draw them to yourself, your death, giving your own life on a cross, that they in turn might not only live for you, but that they might worship you as the shepherd did 2,000 years ago, as the Magi did some 2,000 years ago, with fear and with trembling. O wounded king, come soon so that we, your children, can be with you forever in your kingdom. And we pray this for Jesus' sake, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.